Blog Talk Radio. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, report after report notes the great divisions that uh, exist in our time uh, between races and ethnicities. However, such does not need be, to be the case. In the midst of all this division stands a church in Indian land, South Carolina, that has overcome such stigmas. Transformation Church, led by founding and senior pastor Dr. Derwin Gray, has become has been listed by Forbes magazine as one of the fastest growing churches in America. In addition, Transformation Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, mission-minded church. On today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. Derwin Gray. Dr. Gray received an honorary doctorate from Southern Evangelical Seminary, where he also received his Master of Divinity from SES. Dr. Gray played football for BYU and uh, is also working on a Doctor of Ministry degree from Northern Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Gray also played for the Indianapolis Colts and the Carolina Panthers, uh, and as we mentioned, he played college football for BYU as well. So today we are joined by Dr. Derwin Gray, and Dr. Gray, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us today. Well, Brian, thank you very much for for having me, and I'm honored to uh, to be with you, so thank you. Well, thank you so much. First and foremost, as we um, always do when we have a guest on our show, would you mind telling us about your salvation experience and how it is you came to know Christ as your Savior? Yeah, so um, I didn't grow up uh, in the in the church and came from a very dysfunctional family background like everybody does. Uh, my grandmother primarily raised me. Uh, my mom was in and out of my life. My dad was not very much involved in my life. I uh, came from a area of lots of crime and drug abuse, what we would call the, a high-risk area. And so at about age 13, uh, I recognized that football was uh, my salvation. And I wouldn't use those words, but salvation meant that football was my ticket out of my environment, that I seen on TV that, you know, there were – high school kids that could go to college for playing ball and um, that's what I decided to do so worked really really hard went to a great high school with a great football tradition 
And because I didn't know what Christians were, I didn't know that the head coach and many of the staff were followers of Christ. I just knew I wanted to be like them. They taught us a lot about how football was a classroom for life. And so it was a lot of God's common grace the two years that I played high school football at Judson. And so uh, end of my senior year, I accepted a football scholarship to Brigham Young and uh, didn't have a religious background, went to a Mormon church. So you got a black kid from San Antonio, Texas, going to Provo, Utah, a Mormon Mecca. And so it was uh, quite a change of uh, culture, change of scenery. But when I look back at God's providence, it's exactly where I needed to be. I had a great football career there, uh, nominated for the BYU all-time team. I guess I'm a legend there. That's kind of what some of the folks say there. But I met my wife there my freshman year. We've been together ever since. We've been married for 24 years now. And so my um, first year in the NFL after my football career at BYU, there was a guy on the team that was different. Every day he'd take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? His nickname was the Naked Preacher, but his real name was Steve Grant. But he would evangelize with a towel around his waist, thus the Naked Preacher. (laughs) So for five years, for five years, I watched him first embody the gospel. Secondly, his gospel message was credible because I seen the way he lived among us. And uh, it, it, it was the older I get, the more appreciative I am of Steve Grant understanding that he was not a football player. He was a missionary disguised as a football player. Wow. So on August 2nd, 1997, in a small dorm room in Anderson, Indiana, my fifth year in the NFL, uh, I called my wife on the phone. And I said, I want to be more committed to you, and I want to be committed to Jesus. And at that moment, uh, I knew I was loved. I knew I was forgiven. And I knew that something new had happened to me, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And I just d- developed this insatiable appetite to read the Bible, to read any books about Christ. And so I stayed with the uh, Colts for one more year, and then 1998. I signed as a free agent to play for the Carolina Panthers. And then after that season, in the fall of 99, my wife and I decided, I think we're done with this football thing. So it's like, well, what are you going to do now? We're like, we don't know. And I got invited to go speak at a youth event in Columbia, South Carolina. I argued and wrestled with God because I was a compulsive stutterer. And I was like, God, why would you ask somebody who can't talk to go speak? And I sense God speak to my heart and say, if I can raise my son Jesus from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. Go tell my story. It's not yours. Go tell my story of grace. And I went down there, and a bunch of kids got saved. And the next day, the phone started ringing off the hook. And before you know it, I was an itinerant evangelist, just like that. I tell you, talk about the sovereignty of God, how he puts people in our lives at uh, certain times. Uh, That demonstrates that quite well. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Well, you know, it's been concerning to me, um, and in fact I'm sure it's concerning to quite several several people in our nation, about the uh, racial divide 
that uh, that seems to have escalated in our day and time. Of course, our nation has always had a history of racial division, but it seems like it's escalated in recent days. What solutions uh, does Christianity offer to the table that no other worldview can afford? Yeah, you know, and and thank you for asking uh, that question. So so let me let me paint a picture. Uh, different ethnicities are at odds with each other. One one group says that the other group is unclean. The other group says that the other group is ignorant, and they're at odds with each each other. Um, upper class doesn't like lower class. Lower class doesn't like middle class or upper class. Um, the world that I'm describing is not the United States of America. It's first century. Greco-Roman world in which Jesus and all the apostles lived in. Mm. So, racism, classism, ethnocentrism is nothing new that the gospel has not defeated. Amen. It's very important to understand. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, through you, all of the nations, all of the ethnos, all of the people will be blessed. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.7 says the gospel was... 3.8, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. So let me categorically say this. The perfect life that Jesus lived, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit not only reconciles us to God vertically. We're declared righteous. We're forgiven. All of those beautiful things. However... It also reconciles us to one another horizontally. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Christ himself is our peace. He broke down the dividing wall. In his body on the cross, he made the two groups one. Amen. So for the Apostle Paul, he knew nothing of segregated, homogeneous church churches. Every church the Apostle Paul planted had Jews in them. An ethnic Jew is an ethnic Jew. A Gentile would have been the rest of the world. In the Roman world, you had various stripes of Africans, you had Europeans, you had barbarians, Scythians, you, you had all these mixtures of people and different classes. Emperor Nero said this about the Christian church. They were able to bring Jews and Gentiles together, and I, and I was never able to do that. Wow. So let me once again categorically say, Individual salvation only exists so God the Father can have a family, so Jesus can have a bride, and the Holy Spirit can have a temple to dwell, and that family is Jews and Gentiles. So this racial strife we're having is no different than what the Apostle Paul did. The difference is 2,000 years later in the West, we have a very individualistic gospel. We say things like, you know, you need to get saved, and that's true. But salvation has three tenses. I have been saved from the penalty of sin, justification. I am being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. I will be saved from the presence of sin, glorification. So the building of a Jew-Gentile, the building of a multi-ethnic community to reflect the eschatological reality of every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping Jesus, which is found in Revelation chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. So if the new heavens and new earth is going to be integrated, then we need to practice that in the present, and the force to do it is through the gospel. 
so that's why I wrote my book, The High Definition Leader, Building Multi-Ethnic Churches in a Multi-Ethnic World. And here's the sad thing, Brian, that breaks my heart, is what I'm saying is not anything new. It's something that's ancient and always been true, and we've ignored it. Amen. Uh, nearly 90% of churches in America are homogeneous. Mm. A multi-ethnic church would be considered one in which 80% of one ethnicity does not make up the majority. Mm. And, and so this isn't like, Darwin, that's nice you guys are doing that in the North Carolina, South Carolina area. No, this is biblical. This is gospel. Mm. And, um, you know, the majority of churches that are homogeneous are not that way because of demographics. They're that way out of choice. Well, that's true. That's true. And you said something at uh, last year's National Conference on Christian Apologetics that really resonated with me, and that is that when we get to heaven, you know, and I think you alluded to it already as as well, uh, when we get to heaven, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see people from every ethnicity, every language, every tribe coming together under the banner of Christ. Yeah, and, and if I could add just a little bit to what you eloquently said, we're not just going to see people. We're going to see blood-bought, redeemed, justified brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. That that God doesn't want us to be colorblind. He wants us to be color-blessed. Hmm. That's why the new heavens and new earth is going to be every nation, tribe, and tongue adoring and worshiping Christ. One of the apologetics of the early church was Jews and Gentiles, enemies, becoming friends. One of the early apologetics to the resurrection of Jesus was the resurrection of a new humanity called Jews and Gentiles. In Acts chapter 11, I believe it's verse 26 or 27, followers of Jesus was first called Christians in a city of Antioch. They were called Christians because the Jews and the Gentiles didn't know what to call this new people who did life. So instead of calling them Jews, instead of calling them Gentiles, they called them Christians. So Christian was the designation of a new ethnicity. So the term Christian was birthed out of this multi-ethnic church where enemies became friends, where Jews started marrying Jew, uh, Gentiles, and Gentiles started marrying Jews. And it was a whole new way of life that the world was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. They used to not even go into each other's homes. Now they're marrying each other, and they're saying it because of the love of Christ. Can you imagine... What would actually happen in America if Christians of different ethnicities did what Philippians 2.4 says? Have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. Humble yourselves. You know, walk in humility. Listen to each other's stories. And here's what happens. When we go to segregated churches, we will see different events differently based on the situation and perspective we have in life. Case in point, um, for a lot of my Caucasian friends, they will say, you know, these shootings of these unarmed black men wouldn't happen if they were respectful, if they would just obey the police. Well, we've seen in Minneapolis where uh, the black man was told, grab your wallet, and he didn't get shot. Right. Now, keep in mind, this is in a nation 
injustice towards black men has, has happened since day one. And I, I think we all need to acknowledge that, right? Right. But we also need to acknowledge that killing police officers is an act of terrorism, and it's wrong, and it needs to be condemned. Absolutely. And we need to acknowledge that police officers fear for their lives as well. And so we can be anti-police brutality and anti-brutality against police at the same time. It doesn't have to be an either-or. We need to do a better job of listening to each other. And another thing that I'll say too, Brian, is this. Everyone listening, I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount and see if your political affiliation matches that and see if how we communicate online matches that. Mm. Personally, neither one of the parties match the Sermon on the Mount. That's true. That's very true. Absolutely. I I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I actually have chill bumps. (laughs) You know, uh, just just thinking about that, you know. Um, you know, one thing as well, and, and this kind of goes into what you've been discussing, um, what are some practical things that we can do to offer healing and unity in the midst of this chaos and, un- and turmoil? And I want to combine that with the next question as well. At uh, last year's uh, conference, uh, I was I was really impressed how you faced head on uh, the stereotypes that exist. Uh, <laughs> you know that, and to be quite honest, a lot of them I had never heard before. You know, but uh, but you had boldness to to confront that head on. Uh, what's necessary to eliminate these stereotypes and see people through the eyes of Christ, through the lens of Christ? Maybe it's a transformation of some sort that happens in our mindset or or something of that. But uh, what are some practical things we can do, and and how is it that we as believers can confront head-on these stereotypes that exist? Yeah, the first thing, the most practical thing that we can do is refresh, reboot, and renew our theology of what the gospel is. Theology is always practical. And until we, if if we view the gospel as Jesus died for my sins, believe in him, you pray to prayer, you don't go to hell. That's a very tiny gospel. Right. The gospel that I believe in says that there's a new king. He's resurrected from the dead. His name is Jesus. He's Lord and Savior. And by his grace, through faith, he is establishing a kingdom. And that kingdom has people in it of every ethnicity and class, gender, and now they are the hands and feet of this new king to embody the kingdom. It's all by grace through the Holy Spirit's power from beginning to end. That changes how you view the gospel. Secondly, a practical thing you can do is get my book, The High Definition Leader, and read it and read it and read it and then buy it for your deacons, your elders, and your pastors and tell them to read it as well. Thirdly, this movement has to start in the pews. Like you have to look around and go, why is my church all black? Why is my church all white and the public school is diverse? Fourthly, we have to get beyond our preference to what God's heartbeat is. Way before Dr. King had his I Have a Dream speech, the King of Kings had a dream. And he told it to Abraham. He said, Abraham, through you, all the nations would be blessed. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. 
the nations are across the street, not just across the sea. And so we have to get a heartbeat for God's reconciling power. Now, what we do at Transformation Church, our staff is multi-ethnic. We get that from Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 13. We do a lot with cross-cultural competency. In other words, we listen to each other's stories. And, and, and here's something that's very convicting. Why is it that college football teams, college basketball teams, professional football teams, professional baseball teams, why is it that they can be multi-ethnic and get along and the church can't be? Very good point. So I take a lot of what I've learned in football um, and I apply it to leadership. Cross-cultural competency is very important. Listening to each other's stories, not having stereotypes, but doing dinner with people, having communion with folks, really actually doing life with each other. Treat everybody like Jesus Christ died for them. It's mm. hard to be a racist or indifferent if you do that. Amen. Amen. So those are some practical steps, but in my book I, I give a, a much, much more succinct theology and the practices, and I am shamelessly plug in my book. I didn't write <laughs> hey. it so it could sit on a shelf. I wrote it so people could read it and it could sit in their hearts. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, well, you plug away. You plug away. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, um, and, and, and you may have already answered this question. Um, could you discuss the importance of having more multi-ethnic churches? And I, I remember you said at last year's conference even the mindset of the children, and and you alluded to it already about the um, football teams and uh, in in schools, kids are exposed to multi ethnic multi ethnic uh, communities, but yet when they come to church, you know uh, many times it's a homogenous type of situation. Uh, could you discuss the importance, maybe even for the future generations ahead, uh, to have more of these multi-ethnic churches? Yeah. Well, number one, it's God's heartbeat. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is the rest of their lives is multi-ethnic, but when they come to church, it's segregated, and that's going to cut away at the credibility of the, of the gospel. So hear me carefully. If you want to ensure that in a generation your church is gone, continue to be a homogeneous church because the young kids are going to go, why in the world would I hang out with my friends all week? We listen to the same music. We do the same dances. We got the same friends. We got the same classes. We eat over each other's house. But on the most sacred and holy day, we segregate because... Well, I don't like the way the black preacher preaches. I don't like the way the white preacher's boring. Uh, the black people are too loud. The Latinos do this. The Asians do this. Show me in the Bible where God tells us we can do that. Mm. You won't find it. The church is not Kmart nor Target <laughs> or Walmart. That's right. The bride of Christ. And we don't pick and choose what we want. We say, God... Not what is my preference, but thy will be done. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, you know, I become all things all men, so 
problems there. And would you say, you know, I've, I've kind of noticed that you have primary doctrines, you have secondary doctrines, maybe even tertiary, third level, fourth level doctrines. And usually right around the fourth level, I, I think, uh, in my opinion, those become more preferences, like the style of music, the, the, the style of preaching. D- do you think that has an impact? Because a lot of times people will elevate those preferences to the same degree as primary doctrines. Do you think that's part of the problem in this? I don't even think they put it as doctrine. I think it's a preference. It's, I like this style, I don't like the way they are, and I don't trust them, so therefore I'm going to surround myself with people like me. Right. That's what I think. I mean, I think you. I think you're probably right. Uh, because, well, for instance, I, I had a friend of mine said that uh, who told me that there was a church, and this is no joke, there was a church in the mountains of North Carolina that split in two over, of all things, toilet paper. I guess uh, some of them liked Charmin and some of them liked a different kind, I guess. I, I don't know, but, you know, that just goes to show that a lot of times these these preferences stand in the way of what God really wants to do through us and to be the church that we're supposed to be. Yep, I think that's, yeah, without a doubt. Well, Dr. Gray, we have about uh, five minutes left. What word of encouragement would you like to leave with our listeners? You know, um, what I would say is this, is read the Gospels, read the letters, And every time you see Jew and Gentile, just circle it and say, God, what does this mean? Teach me what this means. Uh, Ask him to orient your heart and go, now, what's this Black Lives Matter thing about? When someone says Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean all lives doesn't matter. I mean, who would go to a cancer fundraiser and go, Cancer matters, but let me tell you about kidney disease, heart disease, Lou Gehrig's disease. No one would do that, right? Right. To say black lives matter is to say there's been a historic injustice towards black men. I mean, who would doubt that, right? Mm. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we couldn't go into restaurants or sit where we wanted to sit on a bus. Um, So that's all that that's saying. And if somebody says something... For a while, you might need to listen. Right. And we also need to recognize that there are systemic injustices that need to be rectified and dealt with. Case in point, how is it that no one goes to jail for the subprime debacle and the bailouts that the American 
context are a rural white kid in a country town gets five years for having a few ounces of drugs. Now, you shouldn't have drugs. There's no doubt. But the scales of justice are definitely tipped. And Jesus cares about justice. Mm. People are tired of saying, okay, we're going to go to heaven when we die, but I'm not going to do anything about the injustice today. Matter of fact, I'm going to benefit from the injustice versus fight it. And we fight it not with bullets or guns, but with faith, hope, and love. Action. Amen. Amen. So, Dr. Gray, man, I tell you, this has been a privilege, my friend. And Dr. Gray's book is The High Definition Church. Uh, Be sure to go pick it up. It's available at Amazon. uh, And uh, is it available at uh, some of the local Christian bookstores? Yes, sir. Everywhere. Amen. So go go by and pick up your copy of the High Definition Church. Be sure to read it. Be sure to share it. Dr. Gray, thank you again, my friend, for being on with us today. For Dr. Derwin Gray, this has been Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. May God richly bless. Quick correction, the book is High Definition Leader, High Definition Leader, and it is uh, found at Amazon.com and you're at every local bookstore around, especially at Walmart and uh, major Christian uh, retail outlets. So be sure to get your copy of the High Definition Leader. Southern Evangelical Seminary presents The Defense Never Rests. The National Conference on Christian Apologetics coming to Charlotte, North Carolina, October 13 through 15, 2016. Come be equipped to defend the faith. This three-day event features over 100 sessions from more than 50 speakers, including many of the world's top Christian thinkers, such as Lee Strobel, author of many books, including The Case for Christ, Jay Sekulow, chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, SES co-founder Norman Geisler, and SES president Richard Land, veteran apologist Josh McDowell, Frank Turek, Jay Warner Wallace, SES professors, and many more. Join us for America's largest and longest-running apologetics conference. Thursday is a dedicated day for women only. Register now and save. It's time to get off the sidelines and get into the game. The defense never rests. To learn more, visit ses.edu. Southern Evangelical Seminary. On campus, online, on mission.